the story leading to this award, well, of course, that goes back right to almost the beginning of life. My mother and aunt could see I, at a very early age, like six or seven, I liked to catch butterflies, and uh, they encouraged that. That encouragement went on during my teenage years when I was at school, and I used to infuriate my housemaster at school by growing caterpillars as much as I could in my room, which he thought was a waste of time and stupid. <laughs> How did that turn into the work that then led to you winning the Nobel Prize? I was started on science at school at the age of 15. In those days, you didn't do any science until you were of that age. And then I did one term of science being taught by a biology master, and he gave me an absolutely crippling report, essentially saying I was absolutely unsuited to science, at which point I was removed from science in the rest of my time at school and was put on to ancient Greek and Latin. And then when I finished school, my mother and family could see what I really was interested in was actually biology in one form or another. And they, having paid very expensive private school fees to the age of 18, they were then uh, asked if they would spend another two years um, having me trained to get into science, which they very generously did. And then I ended up being accepted for the zoology course in Oxford University. And that I survived that. And then the career really took off when I was a graduate student with a wonderful supervisor in that department. It's interesting that you kept that school report. You've got it on the wall here in your office. <coughs> yes, the teacher concerned was frankly bored by the subject I was bottom of the bottom form of the whole year, and that's out of 250 boys. So uh, this was kind of... I was a rubbish person, really. And uh, he retired very soon after he'd um, had the disadvantage of trying to teach me. So I don't think he ever knew what went on afterwards. But I do keep that report there. Partly it amuses me, and partly many experiments fail, perhaps most of them fail, and we think, well... Perhaps, after all, I'm, perhaps I'm not very good at this subject anyway, so I go and read that report and think, well, maybe they were right. The last time I spoke to someone who won the Nobel Prize, it was Barry Marshall in Perth in Western Australia, the discoverer of, the discoverer of H. pylori, the bug linked to gastric ulcers and cancer. He has a similar thing on his desk, only in this instance it's a rejection letter from the conference at which he proposed his findings of H. pylori, and it says something like, thank you for sending in this abstract, but we don't think this is of sufficient importance or interest to warrant a, a presentation at our conference. There's a trend emerging here that people who are very good in science seem to keep reminders of people telling them why they're no good. Is that a sort of stimulus? Um, well, I think it is in a way... Uh uh, I know in my case, and I was totally rejected for science at school, I, it didn't deter me from my extraordinary interest in insects and, in fact, plants at that time. So all my leisure time was consumed with uh, interest in insects and plants and so on, not on ancient Greek. Uh, so I think it wasn't... In my case, it was not crippling. It didn't prevent... Uh, me eventually getting back into science, but it was uh, quite a struggle. And nowadays, I could not have possibly done that. I would That's have. That's going to be my next point. I don't think you would happen 
again, would you? Not in this environment, anyway. No, you're, you're right. I mean, all the things that happened to me by being even let into Oxford University, even that was done in a very underhand kind of way. You know, someone knew someone who said the right thing to someone else and was slipped in. None of that could happen nowadays. So I'm extremely fortunate to have uh, lived that part of my life when I did, which was just after the Second World War. And uh, they were maybe a little short of students anyway at that time. So how did you then translate that into an interest in the work that then led to where you are now? Well, when I needed to start a PhD, the person who kindly invited me to become a student of his, he was an embryologist, and I did think that was an extremely interesting subject as to how a plant seed turns into a plant or an egg turns into an animal with no guidance from outside, particularly if you think of non-mammalian eggs like frogs, that egg just sits there in a pond and somehow it knows on its own how to turn into a tadpole. Amazing phenomenon. And, and I was fascinated by that, so I was um, delighted to be accepted for a PhD work in what was called embryology. And how did you progress that? I mean, what were you actually working on? What were the big questions when you started your PhD? Yeah, that's a very good point. The primary question I was concerned with was whether all the different cell types of the body have the same sets of genes or not. And one has to go back a step and remember that in the late 1800s, people were very curious about whether the formation of different cells meant that something is lost from the cells that don't need it, sort of concept of genes being lost, for example, brain genes being lost from skin or heart genes being lost from the liver, uh, or if not lost, at least permanently put out of action. That was a very real question at that time. And remember, this was all before even the, even the DNA days, so it, we didn't know very much. And that was, a, I think, a primary question, and it led to the work that I was able to do as a graduate student. So people thought that when a cell turns from, say, a primitive cell in an egg into what becomes skin, that in becoming skin it in some way throws away some of the genes that would enable it to do anything else, so for the rest of its life it has to stay as a skin cell. That's exactly right, and there's a person, his name was August Weissman, who actually proposed that that is how development works. It, as you say, throws away or permanently switches off what is not needed as the different lineages separate out. You know, you start with what they call neurectoderm, then it becomes skin and brain and so on. Things separate out, and this was indeed the concept that uh, would make good sense, really, that you throw away what you don't want and you end up keeping what is needed for the particular cell type you are trying to make. Seems pretty logical to not keep stuff. So you were very much swimming against the tide. If you were trying to disprove <coughs> that, you're going in completely the opposite direction to what people thought at the time. In a way, it was swimming against a tide, but really the point was this was a question being asked. It wasn't as if they said, we know this happens, you have to kind of prove it. It was they saying, is that how development works? And there is a piece of background that's important. Uh, the technique of introducing uh, a nucleus from a cell into an egg was actually invented by two Americans called Briggs and King, and they did that um, in 1952. Uh, they did this experiment with that question in mind, and they found that if you take the nucleus of a very early embryo cell and put it into an egg 
whose own genes have been removed, they did indeed get normal-looking tadpoles. However, they found that if they took a nucleus from a little bit later embryo, an embryo that's a day later, that no longer happened. And so they concluded, uh, as indeed I would have done if I'd done that experiment, that something is being lost or permanently inactivated that is needed to enable the whole organism to to be, uh, be formed. It fitted the concept of a loss or permanent inactivation of genes uh, as development proceeds. So I was in the position of being invited by my supervisor to try and do the same work, albeit on a different species, for which there were good reasons, and uh, see if this was true. And some people say to me, well, well, that was a a stupid thing to do because you already knew the answer. Um, Well, in a way, yes, you knew an answer, but the view was that either they are right, in which case the question you would then ask is, how does that happen? How does an embryo throw away genes? Or they were wrong, in which case it's very important to get the right answer and, and uh, discover how development works without throwing away genes. So how did you actually do that? And how many embryos did you have to throw away before you realised what was actually going on? So it, it, the Briggs and King had invented this clever method, and we tried that, and it absolutely wouldn't work at all. So that turned out to be because the kind of frog we were using had a, has an extraordinary elastic jelly coat which makes it totally impenetrable. So the method that they used absolutely couldn't work. And I, by a piece of luck, partly luck, mainly luck, uh, we uh, discovered that ultraviolet light would solve that problem. Uh, my boss had recently bought a fancy ultraviolet microscope for UV microscopy and we knew that ultraviolet light should kill chromosomes to get rid of the genes from the recipient egg and so we tried that and that worked but an extraordinary piece of luck was that that particular wavelength of ultraviolet light also destroyed this jelly coat Uh, amazingly who would have guessed still unclear why it should do that and it was a very unusual um, emissions that that gave that effect but that was extraordinarily fortunate meaning it was possible to actually penetrate this egg with a micro pipette and put in the nucleus of another more mature cell and indeed do that but and in addition to kill the chromosomes of the egg itself so the unfertilized egg has its own chromosomes now for this experiment you have to remove those and the americans who did that did it with a little needle which however didn't work in this frog so it was uh, critical that the this ultraviolet light actually killed the egg chromosomes therefore thereby giving you an egg with no genes of its own into which you could introduce those from another cell so how did you prove that the genetic material that you were putting in was completely intact and it wasn't, say, vestiges of of material left behind that you hadn't got rid of that were actually making up for any shortfalls in the more mature stuff you put in. Yes, that's a very uh, very good question indeed. And uh, this was another piece of luck. My supervisor had another student who was on a frankly dull project uh, which involved looking at the nucleoli in the nucleus of certain cells and it turned out that this lady got a completely uninterpretable result 
And if I'd been the supervisor, I would have said, well, throw away that experiment, just do it again and, and see if that's really right. Um, but, and he didn't. He said, no, that's very extraordinary. Find the frog that you used for that particular experiment and do it again on that particular frog. He must have thought it might be a mutation, and it was. It was a mutation of a very remarkable kind, actually involving the deletion of ribosomal genes. And that deletion has the effect of removing a nucleolus, a ribosome-forming structure made by a set of chromosomes. And the cells that have this always have one nucleolus, which you can see under the microscope, per chromosome set, per diploid chromosome set. So there are two sets of chromosomes. They normally both make these nucleoli. But in this mutation, there's only one, because one's gone. And that immediately provided a genetic marker for exactly the purpose that you mentioned. And that was absolutely crucial. Otherwise, people would never have believed our results. So that led you to be able to conclude that regardless of how specialised a cell is, there is a complete complement of DNA in that cell which, if you put it back into an egg, can recapitulate an entire animal again. What you say is exactly correct. The only thing to add is that this does not work perfectly. So when you do this experiment, sometimes it works absolutely perfectly, and the combination of the transplanted nucleus and egg will make a completely normal adult frog. Other times it doesn't. Something goes wrong. And the more advanced the cell from which you take the nucleus, the more likely it is to go wrong. But it works from time to time. And the critical experiment was to have this genetically marked nucleus from an intestine cell of a tadpole into the non-nucleated egg and grow a normal adult animal of normal sexual maturity. And that happens, not very often, but it does happen. So you get that result your whole life changes, presumably, because you've um, suddenly rewritten <coughs> biology. Yes, it did, really, because it, it seemed to prove that we now believe to be true, that all cells of the body, almost all, have the same set of genes. And from then onwards, which was roughly 50 years ago, I've been trying to discover how that happens, what has the egg got that can set the whole program back to the beginning again. And some people say... Gurdon did an interesting experiment when he was a student and he spent the next 50 years doing nothing useful at all. Do you agree? I like to think not because we actually do understand a reasonable amount, don't understand everything. That's my next uh, aim, to try and fully understand how this is done. How are you trying to probe what it is in an egg that has the capacity to turn cells back in time and make so that from... Uh, an aged specimen like me or my wife, <laughs> you can give, give rise to fresh life, which has a cell age of zero again. We have two approaches to this question, which have been preoccupying us for a decade. And one asks the question, what is it in an egg that can positively turn on genes that were previously quiescent? Like in the skin cell, doesn't have brain genes on, but the egg can switch those on. One says, what are those components? And the other half of the question is, why does this work uh, badly very often? If you take skin cells, skin nuclei, transplant them, most of the time you do not get this result. So the skin cell nucleus is resistant to the, these components of eggs, and we're uh, trying to follow both those routes. And in short, the way we do this is to use the 
egg progenitor cells, which happen to be called oocytes, they are extremely convenient cells to work with in the laboratory, and they they do much the same as eggs, but they have the huge advantage that you can um, isolate components from them and inactivate other components, and so gradually try to dissect out what it is in this egg that it has these amazing rejuvenating factors, and also what it is in these cells that come from skin, etc., which resist these egg components. So if I took an egg and I put a nucleus from a skin cell into it, then there is a chance, albeit a slim one, that it will do this reprogramming and I get a new sort of embryonic lineage coming out. What about if you do the reverse? What about if you take the contents of an egg and you inject that into a mature cell? Does that work? Uh, It's a good idea, and uh, of course we've tried that, and it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't is that the amount of material you can take from an egg and put into a normal body cell is exceedingly small. So the eggs that we deal with are about 100,000 times bigger than a cell. And you could only put in less than 100,000th of the egg into a cell, even less than that, and it just doesn't have an effect. So the only way you can do that is to purify the components of the egg, concentrate them, and then put those ones back into suitable cells. That can work up to a point, and we do do some of those experiments. But in general, one single component of an egg doesn't have any effect. You need combinations of them. That's a more difficult experiment to do. So in general, one is trying to do experiments where you inactivate a known component of the egg and then do this test and say, having removed component X, is the egg no longer able to do this reprogramming or rejuvenation? So you test one by one the various factors you can find and see which ones seem to be important. What do you think these factors are? Are they functional nucleic acids? Are they bits of mRNA, for example? Are they biochemicals, such as proteins? Do you have any feel for what they are, or is there no one single species? It's a, it's a cocktail. Well, we do now have some idea, and we know, for example, that these components are not DNA, not genes themselves. They're also not RNA, interestingly, uh, which it might be. They almost certainly are some kinds of proteins. And the idea is that there are these proteins specially present in an egg, and those will find the quiescent genes of a skin cell and open those genes up so that they can be read or transcribed into the relevant products. That's the way it's looking at the moment. What's been, over the course of your career, the public reaction to the work that you've done and its implications? Um, Well, for a while there's been uh, so-called ethical concerns. For example, people say that if you were to do these sort of experiments in humans... Uh, less to say, to take a skin cell nucleus of a human and put it into a human egg and grow an embryo, uh, they say that's like creating new life. Uh, And life is sacrosanct, so you shouldn't be doing that unless you're going to grow that into an individual. Uh, I would disagree completely with that view on the grounds that if you do these kinds of experiments that we do, you could indeed, in principle get a human embryo, but that human embryo could never, under any circumstances, form a human unless that embryo is implanted into the maternal uh, environment, and you don't do that in the lab, so there is no way 
this any kind of reconstructed embryo could possibly form a human. And therefore, I see no ethical problem at all in trying that kind of experiment. Actually, it's not particularly useful to do it in humans because you can do it much more conveniently in mice or other, other animals. But I don't believe there are any ethical concerns at all. But how has sentiment changed over time? As the implications of what you were doing and its potential have become clear to people, how has that changed people's attitudes? I think it has. The example I'd give is a slightly different one, and that is the work of uh, Robert Edwards, who uh, invented in vitro fertilisation for humans, and he invented that actually here in Cambridge. And for the first while... Uh, he had the most awful press. People would write letters and say, I hope you die in hell or you're burnt alive, etc., because you're, this is unnatural and this is not what should be done. However, when he first produced his successful child, I think named Louise Brown, uh, the ethicists went, just disappeared. All went to ground. They vanished. So the, these ethicists seem to make a, like a fuss until something works, when it's useful they, they disappear, I think. OK, so you've won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> but, you know, you, you are not as young as you were, John. So w- what do you see you doing with the rest of your time now? Are you going to just carry on in the lab, or do you have some other <coughs> goals in mind that you would like to do now you've got this award, got this prize that can help to spur things on in a, perhaps a new direction? Yes, one often thinks that... At my age, you ought to be dead, indeed. When they well, that wasn't the implication, but <laughs> no, someone might say that, especially if you remember this institute happens to carry my name, for which there's a, another reason. But still, that you don't normally have your name on something till you're dead, and then the college I belong to put up that flag. Well, flag at half fast usually means you're dead. So, uh, but I'm actually not dead. Uh, I'm fortunate to find, pleased to find. So the question is, do you just retire and? Uh, plant cabbages for the rest of your day but uh, I feel very motivated by the work we're able to do and feel that we are now in, in a position to actually answer this fundamental question of how the egg has this rejuvenating capacity. You might say why and why do you wait till you're nearly 80 to do that? Well a good answer to that question would be that the technology now available has completely changed. When I was a graduate student you couldn't, you couldn't possibly detect the the activity of a single gene. Now you can do that rather well. You can clone genes, put in have as many genes as you want, modify them, mutate them. All this molecular biology has changed out of recognition. And it does mean that it's, in my view, a realistic chance of answering the basic question of how does an egg rejuvenate an adult cell.